Well, let's open our Bibles and invite you to turn with me to Ephesians 5. And we want to read a portion of Scripture here. And uh, seek God's guidance and direction in it. Ephesians chapter 5. I want to... I want to begin in verse 15 and read to the end of the chapter. See then, that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourself, sorry, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Why, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present to her to himself a glorious church, not having spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we recognize that your, your great plan for your church, Lord, it lies in Christ and in Christ alone. So this morning we would lift up Christ and we would exalt him. Father, I pray that as we look into this passage, Father, you would open our eyes to see the wondrous things out of your law, the truths that we should behold. And Father, give us grace to receive them. Give us hearts that want to believe and obey. Give us ears that hear with joy and rejoice in your goodness to us. And I pray, Father, that we would give you glory in all things that we would be obedient to you as faithful children, as you would have us to. We ask for your blessing. We cannot do this apart from your spirit, and we ask for your spirit's great blessing upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we want to, to continue in this passage. We looked last time at the headship, God's headship order, and this is part two of God's headship order, and we looked largely at what it means for Christ to submit to his Father, and how that, that headship is something that starts with God. And if, in, in 2 Corinthians 11, in verse 3, it says, Now I would have you know, Paul says, that the head of every woman is the man, and the head of man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. So he, though he gives it in reverse order, it begins with God. Everything that we receive flows down from God. And there's an order in which he gives that. 
He has sent His Son to give us life in Him. And that life and that love all comes through the Son. There's no other place for it to come through. His, all those who receive His life are exclusively His own. There He has no other but those to be His own bride. And so this morning, we're going to continue down that order rather than going through the consecutive order of the passage. He begins this passage with submission. And he talks about wives submitting to their husbands. But as we began last time with God and what that meant between Christ and God, how there's perfect union there, how there's perfect righteousness there, he likens, he, he says that the way we see that union, the way we see that headship work, that's supposed, that is what is to flow down with husband and wife. And there is nothing about the union of husband and wife that is mean or backwards or unloving or ungracious or, or rebellious or sinful. I want us to know that. The things that have gone wrong in the marriage relationships between man and woman stems right back to Genesis 3 and Genesis 2 where man disobeyed and woman was deceived by Satan. And since that day, since that time, since that fall of men, we have the, the whole marriage uh, relationship has, has suffered with great devastation. We don't have to look around us very far. And all around us we know that there is great problems in marriage. And so we're gonna, we want to we wanna approach this morning from the, husband's stamp, from the husband's place. Loving headship of the husband is what I've entitled this, past, this part. And so we want to take next the, the husband's love for his wife and his place as head in the home or in the marriage. And as we look at this, I want you to know that I stand before you trembling this morning. I stand before you as one, friends, that I look at the Word of God and I see the perfection of Jesus Christ. I know how much I've failed. In fact, there's probably more that I've failed in than I've done right. And I understand this morning that as I speak to you, I'm speaking as one of you. I'm not speaking down to you. And so this morning, as I... As, I, as we want to lift up the Word of God, I also recognize there's more here that all of us could do better at. Myself first. And so I want you this morning to think that I'm raising up something that I want to beat you up with. But rather this morning, I want to raise up to you what Christ and what God has given us in headship. Headship has been abused. We come from, many of us come from backgrounds where headship was taken way out of place. And, and, it, and it brought hatred and division between man and woman. In fact, so much so that today the world jumps to the other side of the fence and throws headship out the door and says there's nothing to it anymore. But I want us to come back to what God has to say. Because when the Pharisees came to Jesus and they had a question about what marriage should look like, what did he do? He went right back to what God established in the beginning. And friends, that's what we need to do. We, we, we can't just say, well, because I saw this over here, I'm going over there. We have to say that, yes, it was wrong. Yes, there are things that were wrong, but maybe my eyesight was tinted. Maybe I was a little bit uh, looking at things from the wrong viewpoint. I need to come back to the Word of God and say, God, what would you have me to do? Let me just submit to your leadership and to your, to your order. Friends, it's a beautiful order. We're going to see from Scriptures that 
God does marvelous things through His order. It's there for a reason, for a purpose. We throw it away. We throw away the means that God has for us to accomplish the purpose He has for us to accomplish. So, let's, let's dig in. We begin here. And I begin in verse 23. He says, For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is is head of the church. One of the things that we notice about this, the, the word head is used in both instances. But the church has a perfect head. She has the perfect husband, if you please. He's never sinned. He's never failed one time. He's never done wrong. He's never had a wrong ambition or motive. We know that as I think about our marriage, many times my sin is the issue that has stood in the path of our relationship. There's times when we had to work things out and I had to acknowledge my sin to my wife. I had to say I was wrong. I'm sorry. In fact, that's, part of, that's going to be part of the equation from both sides. That's why in verse 21 he says here, submitting to one another in the fear of God. We live in a fallen world, and God has raised up a perfect standard. That perfect standard oftentimes reveals who we are and what we have lying in us yet. And that submission must be to the will of God and to His perfect standard. And when we understand our need of Him, We must submit to that. We must submit to Him. Well, the word head here in the original, it means to be chief or to be in charge, to be foremost or master. And this we would say He's the leader. He's the one who is to take charge. This was um, also, He was speaking to people who had Households, and you know Jesus talks about the man who had a householder, and he had somebody, a steward who managed his household, and this was a, a, a system of servants and and masters, and and the and the husband or the and the wife were over these these people, and the home was literally a type of business. They they sold things, they they marketed things, they grew their their crops. And they had servants to help them do all these things. And so the husband's headship was, was often in the home, included the extension to the servants and to those who worked for him. That's another subject for another day. We're talking here today about husbands and wives. And that's, that's, Paul narrows it down to this. And so we want to stay here. Husbands, headship is designed by God, husbands, for order in the marriage. This is, this is what God has expected from man from the beginning, man and woman from the beginning. Let's turn to Genesis 2. And we're going to hold our finger here, and we're going to go to Genesis 2, because headship has to do with God putting somebody in charge. That, that's not to be abused, by the way, but he did put man in charge. And let's go to verse, in chapter 2, let's go to verse 16. Actually, I'm going to back up just a minute. No, let's, let's start in verse, in verse 15. We'll start in verse 15. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. The man was by himself, by the way. This was where God has just created Adam. And the Lord had a purpose, you notice, to put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die." The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable or comparable, a help meet, as the old King James would say, to him. 
suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them and whatever Adam called each living creature that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not a helper comparable to him. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the, from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now, I want to go back to verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Now, this was a command. In fact, man is told what God expected from him before he created the woman. He says, You can have all the trees of the field. First, And folks, this is really oftentimes what gets us in trouble. We have, as men, we narrow it down, or as women, either one of us, human beings, nature tends to narrow down the one that we can't have. And we hone in on that and we say, it's just not right that God's keeping me from that one. But rather, look, I, he gave him the whole garden. Other than that one. And I think, friends, that sin has its root in covetousness. In the fact that we can't have what we really want. And, it's, and it's, it is God's way of... Uh, uh, this, this, this command was God's way of keeping, testing man to see whether he would stay true to himself. Man's downfall... We're going, to, we're going to look at that here over here in Genesis 3, verse 6, 17. <clears throat> and we, we're, going to go, we're not going to go through the whole thing, but when we look at verse 17, let's look at what God told Adam. And to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Man's downfall was, unfortunately, the fact that he disobeyed God. He listened to the serpent through his wife. Now, if we understand this, Satan did not come to Adam, who was the head, he did not come to the one whom God commanded, of this tree you shall not eat, of these you may freely eat. He came to Eve, whom Adam was supposed to teach and was supposed to lead and say, look, this is what God has said. We can have all these trees of the garden. They're ours. But this one, we don't eat. Now we know by what she said, she knew. But Satan deceived her to think that that one tree contained more in it than all the rest of everything else that they had. And in her mind, that looked better than what they had. And so when Satan had, had deceived Eve, he came into the headship order and inverted it, turned it upside down, turned it on its head. That's what God is saying here. You listened to Eve instead of listening to me. And ultimately, when you did so, you listened to the serpent because the serpent had already deceived her. Now, I'm not saying this to say that the woman was a lesser person. I'm just saying this is how sin came into the Garden of Eden. This is how man fell. And friends, this is the point of weakness that that. God, when, when the, the headship got turned upside down, when the, when the man began to follow the woman, 
And the woman was following Satan. Then it, it, it brought a curse on all mankind. God had his headship ordered there for protection. Headship is protection. And husbands, we need to understand this. Our place is not just a place to, to place a warm body and, 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 and take up space. We are here for the protection and the care of the wife. And this is why when you invert the headship order, then you lose the ability to protect your wife. And, and it's, so this is why it's necessary that Adam, though he loved his wife and he, he didn't want to, to dishonor, he didn't want to hurt his wife, so he followed her, ended up bringing about the worst kind of sin to the human race. It's, it's because of this that God drove them from the garden, as the children's lesson pointed out he drove them from the garden and they inherited a sinful nature we're gonna go to an example of someone who was not in his place and that's let's go to genesis 20 and we want to look at a man whom we know to be the friend of god a man who is known for his faith but a man who had, like all of us, areas of weakness, areas of sinfulness. Let's note in, let's go to Genesis 20 here, and we begin in verse 1. And Abram journeyed from there to the south, dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and dwelt and, dwelt, and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is, I'm sorry, let me read that again. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And she, even herself, said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands I have done this. God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die, you and all yours. I want us to note here that Abraham was scared of one thing. He was scared of somebody taking his life. And he, he made this deal with Sarah, and it wasn't all completely untrue in the sense that she was his half-sister. Uh, but he, it was a lie, it was a deception in the fact that he did not stand up and say, this is my wife. This is my wife that God has given me. And that would have been far better for him to be killed in that position than for him to dishonor Sarah and abdicate his place as head of the home. You see, Abraham was weak in this area. He was strong in many areas. He, he did a lot of wonderful things, but this was Abraham's weakness. This is a result of the fall. It's a result that, that of the fact that man capitulated to Satan's wishes. And he, therefore, has made the problem of headship a problem that, that he himself cannot deal with apart from the grace of God. In fact, we have this passage, and then we have where he did this in Egypt some 25 years earlier. Same thing. Somehow he had this in his mind that he could use this as an advantage. And it was 
really putting Sarah out here in the limelight and, say, and exposing her to hurt and possibly even death. So, Abimelech here, let's go to, to, to verse, let's go on, on, on up to verse 16. He restores Sarah, he gives back, he gives them, sends them sheep, oxen, male and female servants, gives them to Abraham, restores Sarah to him. In verse 15, Abimelech said, See, my land is before you, dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Therefore, she was rebuked. Now, first of all, Abimelech here, he restored, he gives them a, a huge gift for the for the any hurt or any problem he may have incurred in this misunderstanding. But not only that, he says, he tells Sarah, he says, I have vindicated you. He realized that Sarah was just going along with what Abraham, with the scheme Abraham came up with. And that Sarah is not to be blamed here. But when he says that, in fact, that word there where it says, thus she was rebuked at the end, the, the original language would say that thus she was vindicated. She was, she was uh, justified. So, or declared to be righteous in this situation. But we see the, the problem here. How that Abraham, he... he chose his own well-being over the well-being of his wife. And that's not headship. You know, sometimes men, we, we, we have a wrong concept of headship. And I've heard this from people who, quite frankly, they, they had no business uh, saying what they said. That, you know, I'm just the boss. When I'm the head, I'm the boss. Everybody has to do what I say. And that's not what this means. You see, your weakness here, your weakness is the reason that you have no place to say that. There's only one person that has the right to say that whatever I say goes, and that's God. And the only way that man has headship is he is under the authority, the representation of God. That he is there where God placed him for the purpose God has him and to do what God wants him to do. And that's what we understand here is that Abraham did not do what he was supposed to do. In fact, there is, a, there is, a, there is also where it says that he, is, he vindicates you. There is a, an, an understanding there in the original that is, it is a covering of the eyes for you to all. In other words, when a, when a woman is married, you know, immediately there's an outside world that understands that she has a husband. But when he said she's my sister, he now exposed her as, in their eyes, as a single person. And he says, Abraham is a covering of the eyes. These men don't have a right to take a second look at you. Because you are her head, and you're filling that place as her husband. In fact, Abimelech is in this sense saying, I wouldn't have taken the second look if I'd have known. I'd have never paid another moment's attention had I known. Friends, this, this is what God wants us to think about. We have a place to fill. Now let's look at somebody who filled his place. Let's turn to Job 1. Job is a good example of one who was a faithful head in his marriage, in his marriage relationship with his wife and with his children. We're going to jump in here. We don't have time to go through all this, but let's begin in verse 5. 
Let's begin in verse 4. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This Job did, thus Job did regularly. I want us to understand something here. Satan came to God. We know the story how he came to God. And who, who spoke first? God did. He said, have you seen my servant Job? How that he is excellent and upright in the land? He's perfect and upright that he pushes aside evil. He shuns evil and embraces what's good. In other words, if you want to know what was happening in Job's life, that God could say, there's a man who shuns evil and does good. Look at what he's doing when his children get together to have a party. Job is a man who understands that he is head of his home. He understands what it means to be in a place for their protection. And he goes to God while they're feasting. He says, oh God, I'm offering this to you, this sacrifice, this burnt offering, for the sake of my sons. That possibly in the case that they have sinned against you, Will you forgive them for my sake? Why do you think God pulled him out? All the people on the face of the earth. Not because he was wealthy. Not because he was perfect. He pulled him out because he was abiding with God in the place God wanted him to be. Let's, let's, let's read on a little further. Let's go over to chapter 2. In fact, when, we, when Satan comes before this, let's, let's do a little, little, a little looking at this. And Satan says, but if you'll just let me put my hand on him, he'll curse you. And that word curse there that Satan uses is the same word that Job used in verse 5. He's afraid that his sons will curse God. In their hearts. Satan says, just let me add him, God. Let me have him. I'll make him curse you. In fact, this word cursing means that he would bless him in a cursing way. Job was a man of righteousness. And, and he knew better than to outright curse God. But that he would, cur- he would bless God with a tainted motive. That he would have a motive that, would, that was actually one of slander toward God and he was coming with a false face. Well, let's go over to, je- to chapter 2 and let's go to verse 9. After he's, his body is attacked with boils and, and the Lord has allowed Satan to do this to him. In verse 9 he says, his wife says to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job has his children. He has his houses, his lands, his animals. His goods are taken and his body is stricken with boils. And his wife says, you're a poor, miserable fellow. You know, God is doing this to you. And she knew God was let, allowing this to come. She knew that God was allowing Satan to do this to Job. But God, she, so she says, curse God and just let it be over with. He said, I can't. He says, that's foolishness. To step out of my place. And to say, God, you're wrong in doing this. 
God, you shouldn't be doing this. Is, is, is cursing God for something that God has brought for my good. Shall we accept good and not adversity? Are we going to just stand here and say, I deserve good all the time? God had a purpose. God has said, I want to show, I'm going to show, show off a little bit to Satan. I want to win this bet with Satan. Now, all this came upon Job because God said, have you noticed my servant, Job? Man, it's not the flashiness of what we do and say. It's the faithfulness of standing in the place where God has given us to be and to be faithful to Him with it when all else goes down the drain. You see, friends, headship is here for our protection. And whether we're a good head or we're, whether we're a, we're a good husband or a bad husband, it is where God calls us. He wants us all to be good husbands. In fact, Jesus is the perfect example of leadership and headship. And this is what Paul is saying. If you're filled with the Spirit, men, there's a place that you must fill in your home. And Jesus is the perfect place for us to look. In John 17, verse 11, let's notice what he says. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you. Now, I am no longer in the world, and the, but these are in the world. And he's talking about his children, his own disciples, those who are his own. They're in the world. He is, he is done in the world. He is, his time has come to an end here. He says, And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. And then in verse 19, he says, And for their sakes, their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Friends, the headship of, God, of Christ was that he was going to the cross, had given everything up so that he may keep those whom God has given him. And his prayer in the garden was that God would keep them while he's gone. And then he comes to that climactic part of his prayer in verse 19 where he says, For their sakes, for their sakes, I set myself aside. Do you realize what that means? That means that like as Philippians 2 says that Jesus, he gave up all his wealth in heaven. Gave up the position, gave up the, the, the place with God to come down and change his life to be be in the form of a servant and was humbled to the point of death even to death on the cross for one purpose that he might have a bride that's why he said for my for for their sakes i have sanctified myself i've set myself aside it's not about me this is about them friends headship in the home headship to your wife means a commitment that you have set yourself apart for her as Christ set himself apart for his church. That means that, that as, he, as he says there, that husbands, you are to love your wives. It is because it is personal. Headship in the home is personal. And you are to be personally engaged with this place that God has given you. I want to ask you this morning, have you thrown the headship order aside? Have you abandoned your place? Or this morning, are you in the place where God has called you to be? As Job was, coming before God daily for his children. As Christ most perfectly was, giving himself up completely. 
Well, that is the position of headship. It's going back here to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at the responsibility of headship. It is husbands, verse 25, love your wives. And we're going to have to hurry here. As Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. The word love here is the word agapeo, which means to have preference for, to wish well to, to regard the welfare of the one who is loved. And it's, it's an action word. It's I'm working towards the welfare of the one whom I love. I'm doing the things that I need to do to regard her welfare. The love that is of a spirit-filled husband has for his wife is that she is exclusively his and he has committed himself to exclusively be her husband. Let's notice the language. Husbands, love your wives. In verse 25. In verse 26. I'm sorry. In verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives. And in verse 33, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife. You are called to be the head in the home of where you love your own wife. This isn't like the love that Christ has for his children. It's not a love that he has for the whole world. There's an exclusive love that he has for his children. And he has called us to represent that in our homes, in our marriages. He will love his wife exclusively. How many times, husbands, do you find that men out there in the world, especially, they're, they're jumping from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And that's not the love that God has called us to. He has called us to love our wives as Christ loves his church. Well, next we note that this is a self-sacrificing love. As we look here in verse 25, that he also loved the church and gave himself for her. And that's what he meant when he said, I sanctify myself. I have given myself up. I have set myself apart for her. As a head of the home, brothers, it is our responsibility to be there for her. That's what God calls us to. That's what Jesus has done for his church. We are to care about her. It is, it is to be our responsibility to love her the same way that Christ loved his church. That is a high calling. There is no love like the love Christ has for his church, friends. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has not been seen than that Christ gave himself up. And not only did he say, well, I went to the cross and I died, but he suffered the humiliation from the day of his birth all the way to the day of his death. It was a downgrade walk of life in the three years that he was here on this earth. He downgraded all the time, the whole way, humbling himself under all kinds of, of shame and, 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 and mockery and all kinds of resistance, all kinds of hatred. And he humbled himself all the way down to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And he did it for one reason that he may win his bride that he may get his people for himself in fact we find this in philippians 2 and we're just going to read verses 1 through 4 here he says if there's any consolation of in in christ if there's any comfort of love any fellowship of the spirit any affection and mercy fulfill my joy being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better 
than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Skip verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He goes on to speak about how that Christ did not think that he was robbed of anything to leave the glories of heaven and to be humbled to the point of death. But let's notice what he has to say here. Notice how that they are filled, the church is to be filled, verse 2, with the same love. Where did that love come from? That love came down from Christ, from God through Christ. And the church was filled with it. The church knows that love because there's a love that comes from God through Christ. In fact, we find that that this is what the church is known by. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. When you have love one for another. How did that happen? We're not by nature lovers of each other. But rather haters and fighters, backbiters. But he changes the nature. And, and we have inherited the nature of Christ. Friends, in just that way, our love is to permeate through our wife into our home. And the love that the home experiences is to come from us. And it comes from Christ. It is impossible for you to love your wife as Christ loved the church unless he lives within you. It is an impossibility because there's, we don't have that kind of capacity. It takes the grace of God. And Paul knew what he was saying here. When he said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, he knew that that means that they're going to have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is going to have to make that happen. That that love that's known in the family and in the home comes down from the Father. Listen, it, it must be this way. Listen, what? not only that, there's, there's unity there. There's a unity that comes from Christ. It is impossible for two people to get married and to have unity that endures unless God makes it happen. This unity is known from God. You're being with one accord and one mind. There's joy there. There's joy that comes because God is working from above and down through the headship order. You want to kill? You want to kill the, the, the love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering and, and unity in the home? Invert that headship order. Take it away. And you have chaos. That's why we have the mess we have today in our homes across America. Fathers aren't even present so many times. They have left their place as head of the home. God has designed that we should know this. And we should know that it comes from Him. In fact, not only that, but He says that nothing is done through selfish ambition or conceit. The best way to keep conceit and selfish ambition out is to be filled with the love, sacrificial love of Christ. If we will apply ourselves to what He commands us to do to serve our wives, there will be plenty there to keep pride knocked out. It's a humbling experience. The experience of verse 2, to fulfill the joy, to have the same love, to be of one accord and one mind, is the best way to, 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 to guard against the selfish ambition, the conceit, and the sin that follows those things. 
The husband is to lead verses 3 and 4 by serving his wife. Let, let each of you not only look out for the, his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Friends, do you not see that Christ, this comes from Christ. He didn't just look out for his own interests when he was on the cross or when he was going to the cross, but he looked out for us. Even to the point of his death, it was about his children. It was about his bride. First Peter 3, and in verse 7, we'll read this verse. And it's an instruction to us husbands. Sometimes we, we, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to do this. Uh, yes, First Peter 3, verse 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, talking about dwelling with our wives, living with our wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered, may not be hindered. Husbands, we are to dwell with them according to understanding. Part of loving them is learning about them, learning what it takes to dwell with them according to understanding. Being willing to submit ourselves to that. And yes, I said submit ourselves. Notice that though the husband is head of his home and he needs to remain in the place of headship, that does not mean that submission is out of the question for him. It means that he is to submit himself to the care of his wife. I want to read from MacArthur's commentary in, 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 on verse 7. Submission is the responsibility of a Christian husband as well. Though not submitting to his wife as a leader, a believing husband must submit to the loving duty of being sensitive to the needs, fears, and feelings of his wife. In other words, a Christian husband needs to subordinate his needs to hers, whether she is a Christian or not. Peter specifically notes consideration, chivalry, chivalry, and companionship. Let's note that this is the ultimate that God has called for, his, for, the, for us husbands, is that we are to, to live like Christ, which literally means that we are to submit ourselves to taking care of the needs of our wives. Notice that you are heirs together of the grace of life. She's not a lesser person. You're not a lesser person. You're heirs together in the kingdom of God. The roles that you fill are different roles. Your place is a place of headship. And uh, her place in submission to that headship, we will get to in another day. But he is to put her needs and interests above his own. And this is how Christ loves his bride. In fact, in Acts verse chapter 20, verse 28, he says that he purchased her with his own blood. That means that he went to the point of, obtain, of, of giving his own blood to obtain her so that he might get her. There was nothing that was going to stop him from his, his bride and his wife, his church. Now we have this verse here, in verse 26. We come to it, it says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. <clears throat> Jesus does something here in a way that us husbands, we cannot do with our wives. And so there's a sense in which this breaks down. Only Christ can cleanse anybody from wash, by the washing of water with the word. And so, we, but we are to have Christ's concern and his desire in our hearts and what is that that he might sanctify her we are to be concerned about the holiness of god and sanctification in our marriages i know sanctification is not a pretty word but listen it's the fruit of sanctification that makes marriage so beautiful it's the fruit of drawing near to god it's the fruit of being set apart for God that makes 
makes this marriage such a wonderful experience. An unsanctified person, two unsanctified people getting together, is a recipe for disaster. It, it, because they're, unless they can lay down their selfish ambitions, which must come from their own strength, must be something they do on their own, is the only reason that marriages even last outside of Christ. And that's what he's saying here. You cannot cleanse, you, you must be interested in the cleansing of, of, of sin, from sin, by the, by the word. Which simply means that the word must be raised up in your home. The word must be the means by which you and your wife are brought to worship God and to be free from your own sins. There's another, there's another aspect to this. Sin was the issue that stood between, between God's people and God. Sin was the issue that kept Christ from receiving His bride. And He stopped at nothing to obtain His bride. And that is by the washing of the water with the Word. By bringing her to the new birth. By creating a new by creating faith within her, with a regeneration. Notice when Jesus is talking to, to Nicodemus, he says that unless you are born of the water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, meaning literally that unless you are washed and clean, unless you have a new spirit within you, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, meaning that his bride is cleansed, his bride is washed. Why? Because he overcame Every sin for her. And that's what we need to understand is that Christ went to all lengths to have his bride. And so there's an aspect of that part that, that I believe can, we can take. <clears throat> we notice that the Christian husband is to love his wife with the care and tenderness that Christ has for His church. He is, to, he is to love her as His own body. There's supposed to be a tenderness and a care about her. Notice He says in verse, in verse 28, So husbands ought to love their own wives just as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. We have, this <clears throat> we have this understanding that Christ not only, not only uh, loves His church, but He cares for her more than He cares for Himself. And there's a similarity in which we take care of our bodies. You know, if something happens to my finger... I'm going to look for something to, to, to bandage it up or to, or, to, or, or, or to take care of it. And that's the way it, is. it should be with the husband and wife, is that there's a care about one another. And especially us as husbands, we ought to love our wives. Just as we would care for something that happens to us, so we should care about the things that happen to them. It should be that kind of a love. It should be that kind of a self-sacrificing love that I will give myself for. And quickly, we want to look at the establishment. We don't have time to go into it, but we notice he says the establishment of the headship. It says, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We are members of Christ. We are of him, a part of him in the kingdom of God. And so, therefore, this goes back to what God has established. And he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. God is the one who brought them to, brings them together in marriage. They become one flesh. And while God made man from the dust of the ground, he made woman from the rib of the man. And this is important because God didn't just, you know, while man is made from the dust, 
Woman is made for the man and man for the woman. And they're, they're linked together all down through history. You cannot, you cannot separate man and woman. But when he brings men, together, men and woman together in marriage, he brings one man and one woman. It is that, that, that word there to be joined together, be joined to his wife, is like a gluing together. It is a permanent gluing together. So that if some reason this is torn apart by death, that it is a painful separation where it does not, it does not divide. It's like a piece of wood. When you glue a piece of wood together and you press it together, and if you force that wood apart, it does not tear, it does not come apart at the joint that it was put together, but it tears out from each side because it's joined together. This is a work of God. And to, to pull a marriage apart is a pulling apart of the person, literally. A part of his being is missing. It's a great mystery. It is a great mystery because God has done this. And we as husbands are here because God has put us here to, yes, lead our homes. We are to lead them in the way of truth and righteousness. And we are to love our wives as Christ loved his church. When I ask you this morning, husbands, have you submitted yourself to God's will? And to Christ's example of loving your wife. Is this how you love your wife? I understand that when I look at Christ, and there's just so much I, I don't do right. There's just so much I don't get right. There's just so much that I, I don't do as I should. But I want to ask you, is that your desire? Is that your heart? That as Christ loved the church, so you would love your wife. Are you watching over the influences that would come into your marriage and wreck it? I believe had Adam taken care of the influences in his marriage, there would have been a different outcome. In In his proper place, he had the right to make the devil leave with the power of God behind him. Listen, it is our responsibility, husbands, to watch over our marriages. We are not to allow the things in our marriages that would divide us and that would bring about an inversion of the headship order. Are you giving yourself for your wife's benefits in order to meet her needs, even at expense to yourself, even at cost? even at pain, suffering. Have you considered that Christ has overcome all obstacles to bring you to a unified relationship with Him and that you need to be about the business of conquering anything and everything that stands between you and your wife? Are you daily going to God's Word to be cleansed? Are you taking your wife and your family and leading them there, knowing that this is the place where we get cleansed, is the Word of God? A godly marriage, friends, is one of the clearest testimonies of God's grace in the life of a believer to the lost and fallen world. The home is the place today where the most wreckage is found. And sad to say, it's in the church as bad, in what's called the churches of today, as bad as it is in our society. And I call you, husbands, I call myself to embrace the role of headship in the home. Because it is the place where God's going to preserve his testimony. It is how your children will know what it means to walk with God. I understand we can't save our children. We can't, if, our, if our spouses are lost, we can't save them. If th- This is not something we can do. But we must live so that the testimony of Jesus Christ is absolutely clear. When we allow the things to come in, even from our own flesh and our own weakness, to come in 
and to make a place we take away from the influence of the Holy Spirit. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, we come before you this morning and we do thank you for the provision that you have made in Christ Jesus. Lord, how that you take us as fallen sinners. You've loved us, washed us with your blood. And you've called us today to live out the Christian life. And yes, you've called, it to, called us to live it out in our homes. To be under your, your headship, and your leadership, and your direction. We pray, Lord, that you would bless every father here today, every husband. Bless him with the ability, Lord, to draw near to you. And to be able to have his desires brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And be able to lead his family and be able to bring about a sense of love and relationship, unity and joy and peace in his home. We cannot do this apart from your grace, Lord. And so we ask for that, that grace to be given, Lord. We thank you for the, this day that you have given to us. Help us, Lord, to honor you with everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.